Welcome to the Becoming Human podcast. And this episode is quite different from every other episode I've done. Maybe I'm just in the Christmas spirit. But I wanted to share something that I was part of making. Now, I know that not everyone is into Christmas, and not everyone celebrates Christmas. And this is not some sort of conversion attempt. But if we were to just use the notion of becoming human, there are components of Christmas that correlate with the general human experience outside of the religious adherence or specific traditions and language and all of that. Christmas is a process, especially with what is called Advent, and it's a process about participating in a specific ethical teleology by going through the process of conflict and change for transformation on both an individual and social scale. So whether you're a believer, and regardless of how people tend to talk about Christmas, these ideas are there. Here's the deal. Even if you just use the story and narrative, it can inform these very human processes. So last year, I was part of a project to create narratives for a Christmas Eve service at a church I work for called The Farmhouse in a rural community in Northwest Ohio. The idea was to take some of the common motifs and put them into creative stories that were also based on themes that don't usually come up in the common dialogue within churches and Christmas traditions. So there's a bunch of different angles and different emphases, all put into a format that doesn't always get used. So whatever take you have on Christianity or Christmas, I hope that you might find something here that either helps you approach the story differently or that just helps inspire the adventure of becoming human. So the way that this is set up is that there's going to be an opening meditation that tries to connect the essence of the incarnation story to our experience today. And then there's something that I guess, I guess you could call it a sermon. It's kind of an exploration, a talk that tries to connect the dots of what this story might actually be about and what we can learn from it. Then in the middle, there's the actual creative stories. Uh, There's a story about a king and a kingdom and how a world gone wrong can be put back together. And the first part of the creative story section, it begins with uh, the opening of that and then that whole section ends with kind of reprising the story of the king then in the middle there's a story that takes some of the imagery of the you know traditional nativity scene and makes some creative moves with it Uh, there's a woman who owns a tavern and a seemingly unhidden shepherd comes wandering in one night that's how this whole thing's kind of put together and it's really meant to be listened to uh, as one cohesive movement hopefully it takes you from a beginning to a specific end but it has the goal of, of one, trying to explore the narrative with new angles and new depth. So I hope, you know, during the season where you're hearing all of these things, maybe, maybe that will be meaningful for you. But two, it also seeks to use the story to assist with how we live in the world as it is. So I hope you find this useful. Um, if you would rather watch this, these were all actually put together with video. And you can find that on YouTube. I'll put a link in the show notes. But I hope you do actually enjoy it. I hope it does actually inform your process 
and possibly adds a meaningful way to connect to this epitomal season that's going on all around us. So as always, thanks for listening, but let's get into it. Tonight begins the journey of this holy day called Christmas Eve. The birth of this baby makes possible a whole new way of being human. Jesus is confronting the mess that has been made of this humanity project, and this birth is inviting us to be a part of it, in putting the world back together. And so, in what is easiestly the busiest time of year, I invite you to stop and breathe and to journey through this story that is moving us from Advent to Christmas, where Jesus confronts a world that desperately needs to change. And as you take those breaths, and you feel that breath fill your lungs, remove yourself from wherever you have been to where you are now. And I want to invite you to imagine. Imagine that you are a peasant teenager, You've been poor your entire life. And now you are being forced to function as an adult in your household and village. Your family depends on you, just as you depend on them. You are intimately connected. And I want you to imagine that your village is in a kind of imperial slavery. You're constantly surrounded by valiant war horses. These people kidnap your villagers. They beat your people. They take your money and resources. And I want you to imagine that this is not a new thing. This is the same situation that has been happening to your people for the past 700 years. What started with a hope of prophets proclaiming that this would change, it's long gone. You've given up that this will be different. There is no light at the end of the tunnel. And I want you to imagine that as a teenager in this oppressive empire, that you are pregnant. And supposedly, this is an abnormal pregnancy. But it's without the committed household and family structure that is normal. And there are laws for what to do with people like you. And yet you are claiming that this child is going to confront this empire that is oppressing you. You've proclaimed that in 700 years of nothing happening, God is finally showing up. And God's showing up through you. Now imagine that you are leaving with this man you're engaged to, and you're traveling to his place of heritage, to have the government check you in in a census. And it's a beautiful story. God's light is coming into the world, and you are green to leave your village and move to this other place. But it also means that you are green to leave your people, potentially forever. And in your agreement to go through with this birth and to leave with this man, you would be leaving as a dead daughter to your ancestry. And you would be beginning a multiple day journey with nothing in your hands to a place and a future that is unknown. And imagine as you get there, having no place to stay, no refuge for your migration, being rejected to a cave as a poor shunned family, invisible to society, with no place to go. Imagine this world, where governments use their power to oppress. Imagine a world that is constantly on the verge of war. 
imagine a world where slavery exists and where it still exists today to supply our way of life. Imagine a world where empires dominate the global landscape, forcing its will on civilians as we pursue luxury and comfort at the expense of other people and where we're willing to sacrifice the earth for it. Imagine if millions of people were displaced for all of this. And imagine if we celebrated a story of a minority family with no place to go while ignoring and speaking against displaced families with no place to go. Imagine a world where tribes are so bound together that they begin to isolate themselves from others, divide themselves from others, and begin to hate others. Imagine a world where politicians seek out control more than doing good, where propaganda and marketing determine the quality of life for the day, where we hide behind skeletons of moral failure like sexual harassment, where controlling resources and knowledge supersede healthy people, especially if it is beneficial to their political career in a modern-day Rome. Imagine that we would characterize those different from us and pit ourselves against them. Imagine a world where we don't get along because of things like race and culture and gender and nationality, where people are killed and discriminated against because of how they look and act and think. Imagine a world where three billion people live on less than two dollars a day where one billion people don't have access to sanitary water. And imagine if 65% of our society was dying from having too much of these things, where we spend $117 million in healthcare for obesity and inflammation and simply having too much. Imagine a world where your future is uncertain, where 1,500 people die every day from cancer, where people are evicted from their homes or have foreclosure, even your neighbor down the street. Imagine a world where the middle class is dwindling and we have to worry if we are going to make it one more year, where one mistake could send the whole thing into failure. Imagine a world where children are taken and kidnapped. Imagine a world where mothers have to bury their children. Imagine a world where hurricanes destroy communities and villages where wildfires continue to take lives. Imagine a world where addictions pervade our families, where one in ten people are dangerously addicted to chemical substances. Imagine a world where the overdose rate has quadrupled in the last 15 years. Imagine a world where there are more prisoners than farmers. Imagine a world where you don't feel safe walking down the street. Imagine a world where your family isn't perfect. Imagine a world where they had an affair, where one in 10 households are divorced, where marriage is a struggle every single day. Imagine a world where we feel insecure, where we've lost the plot of our lives and we are out of control. Imagine a world where you might have missed the point on something and it's hard to hone up on it. Where our selfish decisions have negative consequences and it always seems like our past is catching up with us. On this night of Christmas Eve, imagine a world where God isn't in charge. Where things just aren't the way they're supposed to be. Imagine that the world that Jesus came into is still the world that we need Jesus to come into today. Imagine that this story is actually our story. 
but imagine that this story is continuing. And imagine that you are being invited to be a part of it. It is the night before Christmas, and our village is burning. For months now, it's been like this. The onset of winter was the last straw for some. I sleep during the day, when it's warm, because at night I'm the only one my family can spare to scavenge for food to eat and fuel to burn. Everyone is starving, and sometimes sleeping during the day is easier than being hungry. Our village is on the edge of the kingdom, a border town. Usually the distance is good, the corruption stays in the capital, but it's made its way to us. The years have been building of poor harvests and deceitful leadership. The group that took the kingdom over seemed blind to our lives and leaves us with nothing. There have been wars and treaties, theft and taxes. No one feels safe anymore. And as winter came, even our little village turned on each other. When I close my eyes, I can still smell fire and hear the voices of our population cannibalizing itself. My mother says I'm too young to have seen these things. I think maybe we all are. The rebels, once my neighbors, course through the city full of hunger, taking what they want from whomever they can find it. I go out each night and mostly hide. It feels like every building in this village has been dismantled. Easy fuel, otherwise hard to come by, and more people and buildings disappear by the day. I'm certain that not even Christmas can save us. I've heard the whispers of the elders that we are too far gone. Soon enough, the shields and swords will come on their war horses. We will be handed over to the destruction we have chosen. The hand of our demise is outstretched, and I know that everything before my eyes will be torn to the ground. It already has been. There are a few trying to stave off the madness, but most have given way to the rot. Those who hope for a future, they're powerless or insane or both. There is one whose voice they follow, another kind of madman. He speaks of planting seeds while he sits in the center of the village mending broken pottery for our food and water. I've seen him hopelessly try to fix shelters covered in his ragged clothing, mumbling on about hope and peace. There are stories about him using his own clothes to mend the wounds of others and make rags for their fevers. Supposedly he even seeks to heal the rebels while bantering to them about how the situation can be reversed, I imagine. Some say he's a teacher. Others say he's cursed. My father says he's unstable. I think they're all right. He's just another beggar. He even tried arguing that the king wasn't going to come crush us and that a new way was possible. Honestly... I dream of the day when not one stone will be left on another. That will be the best day this place has seen since the rebellion started. I would take the wilderness over this mess. At least I'd be able to sleep again. Blow out your candles 
There is no light in this world. All is chaos. All is dark. We can only dream of such heavenly peace. Well, I think our local shepherd has had too much wine again. He's acting like some kind of prophet, like Isaiah reincarnated or something. Now, don't get me wrong, he's one of my best friends, but I have been listening to his stories for years. The poor guy got stuck in the family trade. His ancestors had been shepherds for generations. But we went to Bet Suffer together, and we stayed in touch when he left school to apply the family trade. We still keep in touch. Every now and then, when his nomadic wanderings bring him around to the outskirts of Jerusalem, we'll catch up, and I give him a hot meal, a place to lay his head in my tavern. He reminds me a lot of my brother. He's had a rough life, and he likes to talk about it. Sometimes he doesn't eat for days. He certainly doesn't follow the Torah commands, because he obviously hasn't washed in probably as long as he's been alive. I have to scrub the bedding and sprinkle mint to keep from throwing it in the trash heap. But it's not his fault. He's a shepherd. Our lot in society goes all the way back to the exile. Cursed Babylonians. I spit on their name. Our roles in society have been ostracized more and more. I managed to inherit a decent living, especially because the patrolling centurions prefer my tavern when they're making the rounds in Jerusalem. But shepherds aren't so fortunate. Somehow they're the bottom of the ladder. They're the easiest to abuse. No one listens to them. They've got no land, no title, only their flock of sheep. I sometimes wonder if all shepherds are a little bit unstable, but Besser usually has his wits about him, if nothing else. And then he pulls a stunt like he did last night, and he wonders why I don't want to help him out more. I find him half asleep by the roadside, cold, dirty, hungry, raving. He's mumbling about how he's seen the light, whatever that means. He's either drunk, or he's been hanging outside the temple listening to the scroll of Ezekiel too much. He's claiming all these visions. Moses on a star, next to some goat or something, I don't know. It's a good thing I found him first, or someone would have pitched him over a cliff. Now the real problem, and I'm just telling you what he said. He was speaking of the Mashiach. You can't say that around here. That's treason to the Romans, and I, for one, don't want to end up dead. Maybe they'll just write him off as another worthless shepherd, but we all know what happens to people who talk about things like that. But he kept going on. Something about the sprout of Jesse and the servant of Israel, as if the Gentiles are going to start flocking to Mount Zion or something. (laughs) He always did love those prophets in school. But then he kept talking about the child and the light and the child and the light and some woman named Miriam and I don't know. I fear for him, but I fear for all of us. None of it made any sense. And we've been under someone's heel for the 700 years now. Nothing's gonna change. Part of me wishes this could be true, but He's just a shepherd. A message so important would never be given to someone like him. And even if it did, no one would believe him anyway.
Well, the wrong people heard Besser talking. There was a commotion the other day, and my neighbor came in to tell me that my deranged shepherd friend was being harassed by some of the locals. Apparently, he wasn't the only one to talk about this vision, either. Our wonderful king has issued a decree that anyone talks about the Mashiach will be stoned to death. My neighbor said that Bashir went out looking for some of the other shepherds that he claimed were there. A couple days later, I find him back in Bethlehem at my tavern. Who <sighs> was he angry? Apparently, I had done something wrong. He said I committed a blasphemy. Well, I didn't take it personally. He hasn't been the same since the other night, and I figured he just needed someone to listen. So I asked him to explain to me just exactly what happened. He told me he was out in the fields and he heard a voice, like Jacob in the wilderness or Moses at the burning bush. Now that was enough for me to cut him off, but he kept on going. Again, he brought up how the star appeared over our little village and now added that it was the same one in the sky when Abram was born. He said it was like Mount Sinai, that the presence of Adonai surrounded them like a garment, just like Isaiah's vision, because the sprout of Jesse, the hope of Israel, was born. I tried to quiet him, telling him just how ridiculous he sounded and how much trouble he could get in raving about things like that, but he wouldn't stop. He declared that the voice told him and the other shepherds that a descendant of David was born in David's city, and this child was the Mashiach, the Messiah, and that he, Besir, had been returning to Bethlehem to worship this child. And then it happened. A guard came and seized him. He was paraded around in public as a madman. And I'm not just saying this because he's a friend. I know exactly why he was angry at me. Now I can't speak to the vision or the voice, but there was this family, an engaged couple. They stopped there that same night, I remember, because it was the same night that I found Bashar awestruck by the side of the road. She was pregnant and was getting ready to give birth. I didn't catch their names, but they really needed a place to stay. Now I remembered my first child, how frightened I was when he was born, but there was nothing I could do. Everyone had returned for the census, and I already had people sleeping five deep on my floor. The couple must not have had any relatives in town, though, so since they had nowhere else to go, I told them the best I had was space with my animals in the cellar cave below the tavern. I know... I know it could have all just been a dream, maybe even a delusional dream, but maybe Besser is right. And if he is, what have I done? Did I abandon a king while my apparently delusional friend is being tormented by another king? 700 years of this and the hope of our people might be on the demented lips of a lowly shepherd and being hushed to sleep next to my goats? This can't be. I can't take the anxiety anymore. The scene has been running through my head all day. It's now evening, and I have to go see for myself. If any of this is true, I'm going to feel the wrath of the Sanhedrin anyway. I'm housing a family of insurgents in my barn. 
As I make my way down to the stalls, I notice my servant is rinsing out some bands of cloth. Looks like this isn't a dream. She gives me a frightened look. She seems to know something I don't, and scurries away without saying a word. I can hear a faint whisper interspersed between the bleating of the animals. Sounds like they're still here. Suddenly I hear footsteps behind me and I fear the worst. My stomach is rising through my chest and I turn around, praying that it's not a Roman soldier or a guard of King Herod and, oh, it's best, sir. His eyes are alight, hands clasped reverently, with a deep smile on his face. And behind him there are others, all shepherds, crowding forward as if to see. How he escaped the guards, I don't know. But he looks at me with his childish grin and nods for me to go in. My feet squish on the straw as the smell of manure grows dense. I don't want to believe any of this, but I can sense that my next move is going to change my world. Maybe the whole world. I pause before turning the corner. I can still hear their whispers, and they know someone is approaching. They sound afraid, but so am I. Every part of me has longed for this hope since my brother died. This should have been his tavern. But just like Bashir, he spoke out too publicly, and he faced the same fate as so many Jewish men before him. He was seized and killed for treason during the temple protest years ago. He should be here next to me, at his tavern, with a growing family, smiling next to Besser for the day that he fought so hard for. And then I hear it, the cry of an infant. And all of my pain, all of my past, stirs in me like looking into a mirror dimly lit. I haven't heard the beautiful cry of a baby since my own son was taken from me. I feel regret and anger. How is it that this child can be in my home when my own cannot? Will this baby suffer as my own did? When I wouldn't give to have my child here with me. When I wouldn't give to be able to take all of that back and avenge his death, the death of my brother, my family has been destroyed by this corrupt world. Isaiah promised peace, that swords would be turned into sighs, that hope was possible, that Israel would once again bless the world. How many times have I heard those words as a girl accompanying my parents to the temple for Passover? He has sent me to bring good news to the oppressed to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and release to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's Jubilee and the day of vengeance of our God. Isaiah promised comfort to those who mourn, that a meager seedling would become a sturdy oak and the leader would repair the ancient ruins and the ancient promise. I feel paralyzed. I know nothing. I can hardly breathe at the thought of it all, and suddenly I feel a hand on my back. But I'm too scared to face my friend, and I close my eyes. I only hear a voice that says, Glory to God, and on earth peace. The warmth of the hand feels like a fire in my bones as the night grows colder. 
I gather the strength to embrace my friend. I turn to welcome the proclamation, but no one's there. The shepherds are gone. Besser seems to have vanished. And the air is silent, except for the echo of that still small voice in my head and the faint cry of an infant. I turn back around, and there she is, Miriam, holding her tiny child in her arms. This is the woman I met just days ago, the woman and this child. He looks into my eyes as if seeing right through me. I, I feel like for the first time I am seen as if I am Hagar in a desert oasis, and this child is the very presence of God. My soul bursts with the weight of his gaze. A glimpse of my own son flashes in my mind. I feel the presence of my brother. I hear their laughter and, and then the painful screams of their last moments. But this child's gaze, his little eyes are, are like a piercing star of light. But there he was wrapped in a ragged cloth, held by the hands of an exhausted mother. I can't keep myself upright, not one minute longer. It's just unbearable. The weight of so much loss, all the lives destroyed, all the suffering, the ruins of a once promised city. I am the mother wailing for all the lost children, all the lost hope, and I fall to my knees in the straw. How could any of this be? So many lives snuffed out and destroyed, so many memories burned to the ground. I couldn't come to my senses, but then I feel the warm hand of a frail young mother. She can't be even more than 14 years old, but I hear what sounds like the voice of an angel. Everything is going to be okay. All wrong will be made right. The strength of his arm is outstretched still. Immediately I turn to run. I can't bear it. I want to be a child again. I wish for such innocence. Can I not be that little girl grasping the hands of my parents one more time? I want the world to disappear. I make it to the outskirts of the village on the road to Jerusalem. I can hardly see through my tears, but then I'm stopped by a caravan of camels and merchants from some distant land, led by three men. One grabs me and I shriek with fear, but he shakes me as if to awaken me from sleep and grabs me by the shoulders, urging me to tell him what I have seen. I can't speak. He asks again, What happened to you? How can I describe such a thing? Does he know what I've seen? I stare at him, unable to open my mouth. His eyes grow wider and I hear his companion mutter, show her. It's a piece of silver glass. He holds it up to my face, and I'm blinded by my own reflection. A brilliant light glows from my face. What's happening? His trembling hand moves to my cheek, and slowly he asks me again, Woman, you must tell me what you've seen. I still can't speak, so he turns his gaze to the sky and points. I tilt my head to see it, set against the darkness. 
A radiant star glows like the light of God's voice in the beginning. Suddenly I hear singing coming from my tavern. This is a dream. The dream of my people that we have had for 700 years. I look to the merchants and they look at me in suspense. I point in the vicinity of the cave with the words ringing again and again in my head. He has sent me to bring good news, glory to God and peace on earth. It's still the night before Christmas. I've dragged myself out for my nightly retrieval of food and wood. The rhythm of the city is haunting, a fever that throbs and pulses through every waking soul. But something is off. There are less people than usual, and the ones I do see are moving with purpose. I climb up to the top of a roof, and I see it. A gathering is formed near the bridge, and there is a commotion rising. I force myself to get as close as is safe, and then a little closer. There's a warlord, the leader of the rebellion, one who incited neighbor to rise up against neighbor, the one who unveiled the hatred that is now normal, and he's in an intense parlay with the beggar. I remark to myself how this can't be good. A circle surrounds the warlord as he stares at this meager man who's been trying to make a dent in this doomed city. The crowd is still, so I make my way closer, hearing murmurs as the crowd passes along the words to those behind them. I get up toward the front, and as I glance at the frightening scene, my eyes are immediately met by the beggars. He holds my gaze with an eerily tranquil peace in his face. Suddenly, a monumental hush falls across the city. The powerful man who has waged so much violence and shed so much blood. His shoulders begin to bounce in an uncontrollable sob, and he falls to his knees weeping. He begins to tear his clothes and remove the patches of pride sewn into his garments. And then he yells with a lingering cry, It's too late! It's too late! There's no going back. We have ripped this city to shreds and we deserve the destruction that is sure to follow. The beggar turns his eyes from mine and climbs atop a pile of shattered brick and stone that still remain among the rubble. The warlord is still inconsolable. It's too late. It's too late. We're all going to be killed. There is no mercy from the king for what we have done. All eyes were on the beggar now. Hours must have passed since I first set out, because the first rays of morning light began to shine over the horizon signaling to all that it was now Christmas morning. At this, the beggar grabbed his bag and began to pull something out. As the sun emerged from the darkness, so too did the object in the beggar's hands as he lifted the metal object above his head. A glint of light shot across the sky. It was a crown. The beggar placed the crown on his head and yelled in a thundering voice so unexpected from the frail soul. The king is not coming to destroy you. It's not too late, for the king is already here. I am your king. 
A choir of gasps filled the air. This man, this beggar, he was the king. And he had been with us the whole time. He mended our wounds. He taught us patiently and secretly the ways of hope. And we did not listen. We called him mad. We called him cursed. Yet he did not abandon us. And he is not abandoning us still. He continued, I did not come to destroy you. I have come to join you. And like a highway through the wilderness, I have come to show you the way back home. At once the crowd began a dull melody. I haven't heard the sound of music since before the long winter fell. But here it was. And as the barrage of voices grew, so did our hope. Hope was here, disguised where none of us thought to look, showing us with a subtle presence we could not find ourselves. Immediately, I sprinted for home. My parents were still asleep, huddled in the corner with my siblings to keep warm. I shouted, Mother! Father! The king is here! My father vaulted to grab a weapon, fearing that violence was upon us, but then he heard, in the distance, a song was growing. He looked at me with a blank stare and walked to the door to see what was happening. As my entire family walked into the light of Christmas morning, they were struck with awe, for they saw, walking toward our home, the beggar, with a crown on his head. The beggar king stopped at a nearby house full of holes and picked up some wood to begin repairing the structure. Mother, I said, the king never abandoned us. The king was here the whole time. We never listened to his words, but now we must. The king has joined us. But, my parents said, we deserve death. At this, the disguised king began walking toward us. No, you deserve healing. And the only way to heal this world was for me to come among you and heal it with you. The king reached in his bag and pulled out a hammer, extending it towards my mother. The songs of the city had been joined by the sounds of clanging metal and wooden thuds. My parents looked around, taking in the unexpected moment, until they caught the gaze of the king still staring into their eyes, hammer extended. We've got a lot of work to do. The journey has just begun. There's a story about the world that before anything else there was darkness, chaos, and emptiness. But in the midst of such void, that which is beyond all things, that which makes existence possible, some would call this the divine, enters into the chaos and brings forth the world simply by speaking. And the words used to claim this act of creation is God saying, It is good. But then, as you follow the story, it all goes wrong. The world gets off track, we lose the plot, and for most of us, we straddle an existence that is not good. We have a deep gnawing in our beings that this is not the way it is supposed to be. We exist in the space between. Between a world that was good in the beginning, and a world that could be good again. We sit in the darkness between the light, like a prison cell that can only be opened from the outside. 
and the beautiful word of Christmas is that in the midst of the brokenness, in the midst of the darkness, in the midst of this story, the door has been opened. The light we have been waiting for is here. Emmanuel has come. The King has arrived. God is with us. The divine that spoke the world into being has entered our story and has joined us and is still at work. It's as if Christmas is God revealing his presence that so often seems elusive and is announcing to the world that the king is not coming to destroy us. The king is already here, and the story is not finished. God is saying, I have not abandoned you. I have not given up. I've joined you, and we will put this world back together, and this world will be good again. But what is strange? is that the announcement happens through the cry of an infant. The hope of the world, the medium for the fulfillment of God's kingdom, comes in a form that we least expect. It is the divine disguise of a beggar and of an infant. God's method of retelling the story of the world begins with a child, which means that Christmas alone is not the fix. The king arriving doesn't solve the problems of the world. A child being born doesn't end the story. It's the beginning of a new one. The prison door is opened. It's the first page of a story being retold. This is why the Gospels portray Jesus' coming as a new creation. Each of the Gospels positions Jesus' entrance into the world as a retelling of how it all began in the first place, as if what happened in the beginning is somehow happening again. But it comes through a baby. A king disguised as a beggar who has joined the people to rebuild the world and show us the way to make it good again. Is this why the Gospels tell us that this is good news for all people? Who is this for? Who benefits from such an announcement? Which people? All of them. Like the outcasted, strange, marginalized shepherds who show up first or like the poor peasant parents with no place to go in the shame of an apparent illegitimate pregnancy, or like Herod, the guy who sends soldiers to go and kill this child. The gift of incarnation, this hope, is for everyone. Which is why God couldn't just fix it all at once, or why the king can't just proclaim a decree. God doesn't just say, it is good again. God says, let's make this good again. It starts with the king joining us, showing us, and then offering for us to join him. You are a part of Christmas, even you. The hope of Advent and the night before Christmas is that this manger that has been empty, the hope for the world, it's absent. We simply stare at the void. But tonight, with our eyes fixed on that horizon, we may just see that glinting ray of light because a baby is born and a vacated manger that represents all of the wrong of our world has now been inhabited in the form of a presence that we least expect. The manger is full. The work of God is happening, but it's still a manger, which means there is still a lot of work to be done. So today, as you celebrate Christmas, may you hear the faint cry of a newborn child saying, let's together make this thing good again.
May you hear the divine voice calling out to a world of brokenness and pain and chaos and darkness that the King has been in our midst the entire time, showing us with a subtle presence what is impossible with brute force. And through the piercing yell of that divine breath filling these lungs for the first time, may you hear God reaching out to this world, all of it, through a baby, saying God is putting the world back together. but it comes through the disguised voice of an infant saying, we've got a lot of work to do. The journey has just begun.